as speech pathologists, we, we do really get it. We understand the importance of communication and, and social connections. And it's important to learn that how one way of treating or, or working with a, a client isn't necessarily going to be what works for another client in a different state or from a different tribe. If we've got assessment findings that are robust, then we don't have to make any presumptions. And I strongly believe in the value and worth of what we do and the difference we make. Hello, and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature a conversation about an area or topic related to all things speech pathology. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Hi everyone, it's Annika. Welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. Today's conversation is all about unpacking those tricky results from the Cell 5. In my time, I must have completed hundreds of Cell 5 assessments, and before that, Cell 4 assessments, and before that, Cell 3 assessments. I know I've been around a while. It doesn't matter how many times I complete a Cell 5, there will always be the odd result that puzzles me. Thankfully, I have Angela Kinsella, Consultant Speech Pathologist for Australia and New Zealand at Pearson Clinical with me today to nut out some of those tricky Cell 5 results. Welcome and thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today, Angela. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Annika. I look forward to it. Now, I have a lot of questions for you, but I'm wondering if this is best done through a couple of case studies, if you're okay with that. Yep, sounds good. All right, beautiful. So here's my first case study. Uh, A child aged 6'3" with scaled scores on six out of seven subtests of fives, sixes, or sevens. On one subtest, however, the child has an outlier scaled score of 16. How would I go about interpreting this scaled score and also scoring up the core language and index scores given there's such a significant outlier? Great question. And we get that, or I get those types of questions all the time here at Pearson. so the short answer is you score it as per usual. And don't don't be afraid that it's going to pull up or pull down any of the scores because we've taken those things into account in the norming process. But what is interesting for us as clinicians is that that's obviously the child's strength. So looking at any outliers in their profile, we're automatically going to rely on the, the area of strength to help support their other areas of weakness or areas for development. So it's great. I love seeing a profile where there's a very clear strength because um, we're going to use that in our therapy planning and help the teachers, the parents um, draw on their strength. Um, And often these children, because often the children we work with, they tend to be pretty smart and on top of things and they know where they're struggling. So they will use the areas of strength to mask their areas of weakness. So I always like seeing that. That's kind of cute. The other thing to remember is we have to, have to, have to always look at confidence intervals, percentile ranks and the percentile rank confidence intervals. Because what we want to do is we really want to drill down where that child is at on their very, very worst day because we want to help them overcome their very, very worst day, right? Um, I know that we're going to unpack this a little further in the second case study, Annika, or did you want me to drill down a little deeper Mm. now? Yeah, go for it. Go, Go a little deeper. 
So with those scores that um, you highlighted, um, generally the child's getting fours and fives on average. So if we look at their confidence intervals for that age range, their lowest confidence intervals are going to be twos and threes. Um, if we look at percentile ranks, their lowest confidence um, percentile ranks are going to be like twos and fives as well. So that means like the majority of their peers are doing better than they are all the time. And remember, with that one-on-one -on -one testing, such as the cell five, the child's in a nice, safe environment with a lovely therapist. The therapist is nice and supportive, providing lots of you know generous feedback and encouraging comments. So that is their best performance. Because if you then take them and pop them back in their learning environment, i.e. their classroom, they have to deal with their peers, they have to deal with their teacher, and oftentimes, especially our older kids, um, have different teachers. So they've got to deal with all the sensory stuff as well. Busy visual classroom, noisy classroom, noisy outside, being disturbed by their peers, papers rustling, pencils dropping, children shifting past them. So they've got to filter all that out and then try and access the curriculum. But remember, they are doing worse than the majority of their peers. And often we see these little guys are exhausted at the end of the day because they're working so, so hard to keep up. So yes, the cell five results are important. The standard scores are important. But in my opinion, what's more important is to unpack that at confidence intervals uh, level as well as percentile rank level um, and the confidence intervals for the percentile rank and we always want to focus when we're doing our interpretation on their lowest scores because that's going to be their worst day we want to help them prepare and write our therapy plans for their worst day can i just ask should we be reporting those confidence intervals and percentile ranks in our reports that's a great question um it depends on the situation. The short answer is no. Why? Because parents and teachers get caught up in that and they don't quite understand what they mean. Um, and then I find that I spend all my time explaining what they actually mean rather than the impact of it. So my recommendation is do the scores, look at all the scores, do the, all the analysis, and then in your interpretation, write for moms and dads, write down for teachers what this means functionally. So if we want to report standard scores, because um, you think sometimes we just have to put those scores in for whatever reason, be it a requirement, be it a funding requirement, etc. So those scores are oftentimes important to have in the report, but maybe consider putting them in, a, in as an appendix. Because what we want to write for parents and teachers is how can we help? How can we help you help your student do better? Um, because remember, it's not just on us as a therapist to make this all better. It's a team approach. The student, the parents, the teachers, other professionals all have to be engaged in this child's learning. Um, and it really is up to us as clinicians to make sure that we highlight exactly what that looks like for the parents. So putting numbers in that are meaningless to parents and teachers is not going to help us achieve that. So we want to start writing things and keeping information in our report that's going to impact the child's learning and their language development. 
So, so the functional description, isn't it? It's a functional right. description rather than focusing on those numbers. Correct. So it's important for us to look at the numbers to help us with our interpretation. Because we then, if you look at a score in isolation, so for example, the student got an eight on word definitions, right? So if you look at that in isolation, you go, oh, they're coping okay. But if you break it down um, and their lowest uh, percentile rank is 37% on that subtest, that means that the majority of their peers are doing better so that's that's really critical. It's like all of a sudden we're going, oh, we have to work on work def- word definitions. We have to provide support around increasing um, vocabulary. Why are they breaking down at that level? So that's that's the pitfall of looking at scores in isolation. But all of a sudden, if you've got sorry, if you've got all this information, all of a sudden it's a whole different lens. And then you go, now wonder he or she is struggling. Um, to access the curriculum and it has to be automatic that's the other thing with a cell five we're looking at fundamental oral language skills right all these need to be automatic so if you have to constantly think about what a word means what its function is how it fits into a semantic class for example rather than focusing your um, higher learning on interpreting the information. Now, wonder you're going to fall behind. Now, wonder you're going to be exhausted because you're working so hard just to keep up with the fundamentals. Um, and we really want our students engaged in their learning. We want them to become curious. So if they're using all their thinking time to work out what a pencil is and what it looks like and what it does, I know that's a silly example, but for example... Um, rather than its function, its use, how it fits into different categories, um, how you can use it, the benefits of it, um, then that becomes boring for them. Now, when do they disengage? Because it's a, it's it's boring because they don't understand what's going on, um, and it's hard work. It's not fun. I like what you say too in regards to that sort of processing time, because you're right. When we are doing these assessments, it is under optimal conditions really yet we still get kids with subtests that are taking significant processing time to respond to a test item that's probably worth mentioning too in the report isn't it because um, as you're saying you know all of these skills are things that are so mindful in a classroom but in our actual assessment if we're seeing no proficiency in reaching an answer that's pretty clinically significant too to mention even though that's not reflected in the scores at all (laughs) Absolutely. That is really important. And thanks for raising that because that brings me to um, talk about response times. We want, and I did mention the word automatic, we want the children's responses to be automatic. We want their thinking to be automatic in terms of their fundamentals. Um, So how long do we allow a child to respond? I would love to know. (laughs) (laughs) Because sometimes I feel like I'm probably a bit too generous. And we all, we all have bleeding hearts. We all want the best for the student, right? But if we give the student too much time to respond, what happens then? They know they don't know the answer. Remember I said in my introduction, these kids are smart. They know what they're good at and they know what they're not good at. (laughs) Um, So if we ask them a question and we allow almost endless time, like minutes to respond, they're sitting there thinking, I really don't know the answer. I wish Angela would either disappear or ask me a different question. Um, 
So with the cell five um, standardized administration procedures, it's 10 seconds, and, and this is actually general guidelines for any standardized assessment, it's 10 seconds per response. For formulated sentences, um, it's 15 seconds because it's a, it's a little bit trickier subtest. But you can see how we want it to be automatic. Um, so no longer than 10 seconds. And if they are taking longer than 10 seconds, it's an automatic zero score. But at, to your point, Annika, it's important to note that if they're consistently getting zeros because of a no response because they're taking too long to respond. That is absolutely invaluable information because translate that into their classroom learning environment. They're missing information. The teacher's not giving them enough time to respond or to formulate their thoughts and, you know, to think about a response. And the child hasn't even got enough time to say, excuse me, miss, I don't actually understand that. And then they on to the next thing. So the student has missed all that information and then they just shut down. They disengage. And I, I don't blame them. I would do the same. Um, now, 10 seconds is a long time. So we're not expecting any clinician to sit there with a stopwatch and stare at the student. If you know that the child has got no idea, because we know they'll look at you as if to say, oh, I've got no idea. <laughs> you can see it in their face. So if you're reaching around the five to eight second mark and the subtest or the test allows a repetition, simply repeat the item to the child because that'll re-engage the child and it'll give them kind of some more thinking time. Allow another up to 10 seconds um, for those items where uh, repetition is allowed. And then if there's no response, simply say, Let's try this one or simply ask them the next item because we want to keep the child engaged. Okay, I don't know if any of our listeners have actually had or sat through a cell five themselves, so been the receiving participant. I've done it lots of times for practice, it is excruciating, right? <laughs> it really is the most boring thing you'll ever experience in your life. Yeah. And I think it's important for us to experience what a student will experience if we're giving it to, to our students. Um, it's not fun. It's hard work. And remember, these children have a potential learning, a language difficulty, right? So it's even more excruciating for them. So it's up to us as clinicians to make it as the administration as smooth as possible. Um, if they don't know the response, no point making them wait for two minutes, all right? Um, we want automatic responses and keep the child engaged. So it's up to us to make sure that we are so super familiar with the administration procedures and directions. So it is as um, smooth as possible a process for the child and they actually engaged in the process. And then once the assessment's done, then we can do the fun therapy stuff, right? Remind the child of that because after assessments, children think, oh my goodness, I don't want to go to Angela. This is going to be hard work all the time. So remind them <laughs> that the assessment process is just that, a part of the process and the therapy is fun and the learning's even more fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that clarification. I will say that I Particularly, my most guiltiest subtest is sentence assembly. And that is sub a subtest where I find kids want to persist. But you're right, um, 10 seconds is enough to respond to that. Clar clarification, with, with, the, with subtests that require two responses, so like sentence assembly, they've got to give you two 
correct sentences, different sentences, we allow 10 seconds per response. So that particular item, you can allow up to 20 seconds. So more than sufficient time. Right. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Now, before I introduce this next case study, can I just ask one more question about confidence intervals? Yes, of course. We can choose to use a 68%, a 90% or a 95% confidence interval. Mm. Does it matter what we choose or does it really not matter? Or what, What's your suggestion? Um, it doesn't matter is a short answer, but my recommendation would be to use the highest conf- confidence interval for the diagnosis. Um and the the lowest one, so the sixty eight percent confidence interval for retesting, unless you retesting to discharge from therapy, because we wanted to see some progress, um, and what that looks like when we retesting for progress monitoring. So, in short, highest possible confidence interval for any diagnosis, and for retesting purposes, the lowest possible one. Mm-hmm. Okay, beautiful. Okay, so this second case study, I'm not going to go through all the individual subtests, but um, it is for a student that's age 12, 7, so a year 7 student. Now, this particular student has a receptive expressive discrepancy of 17, which is statistically significant. Now, looking at the prevalence in the normative sample, there's a number of 3.9. Can you explain what that number actually means in a functional context? Yeah, so... It's important to always look at discrepancies. And as I've already highlighted, when we're looking at scores, so we look at scale scores, we look at confidence intervals and percentile ranks and their confidence intervals. And it's really important, so thank you for raising this, Annika, is to always do a discrepancy analysis. Sometimes it's obvious that there's no discrepancy and that's great, right? But if there is, again, it gives you that amazing, amazing additional information. So the particular example that Annika is talking about is a discrepancy between receptive and expressive. Is that correct? Correct, yes, with um, receptive being higher than expressive. So there's two parts at calculating a discrepancy. One is we want to look at it. Is it statistically significant, right? And you have to do step one to do step two. So that's the important bit. And for our lovely statisticians um, or people who like numbers, our maths geeks in the room and or our listeners, um, that's great to know. But for us as clinicians who are more interested in the clinical application, then part two is really important. And um, that is the prevalence in the sample. So Annika mentioned a number of 3.9. So what that means clinically is how often did that particular discrepancy that this child is showing happen in our normative sample? And that discrepancy happened rarely, only 3.9% of the time. So I believe it was Sattler who suggested that if we get a rare discrepancy, anything under, he actually said 10 to 15%, So it depends how low and how strict you want to go. But I tend to stick with anything under 15% is rare. Okay. Um, It just gives me that additional information. And Annika and I did um, in this preparation for today's podcast, actually go and look at this particular student's, because this is a real case, the student's particular scores at subtest level. So um, remember, his receptive is higher than his expressive. So on his expressive, he got subtest. Don't worry, we won't get caught up with what subtests. But he got scores of 8, 5 and 5 on those three subtests that feed into the expressive score. Um, 
put confidence intervals around that. Um, we won't do it subtest level, but I'll jump to um, his composite score, his standard composite score, the true score um, is 76. Pop confidence intervals around that, his lowest one is 68. That's super, super low, right? And then if we look at his percentile rank is five, his lowest confidence interval is two. So that tells us that that all his classmates are doing better than him. And why is that happening? Why is he getting that discrepancy? Well, this little guy needs lots of help. He's in year, well, he's in year eight now, but when the test was done, he was in year seven. And we see this, we see this all the time. I can just sense all the listeners nodding and agreeing. Um, our high school kids, the minute they transition to high school, like Anika, I get so many referrals for those high school, typically boys, don't know what that's about, but actually I have a theory, but typically our boys. Um, and then the parents and teachers say, oh, it's like the wheels have fallen off. And then if you go dig a little bit deeper into the academic history of primary school, those wheels were always wobbly, right? But it's these borderline kids. They're well behaved. They know what to do. They want to please everyone. They work really hard. They try hard all the time. They know they're struggling. Like I said, because this kid also has a clear profile where he's got some nice strengths. So they use that to mask everything else get to the curriculum, guess what? You can't use your rote learning all the time. You can't use your fundamental oral language skills space, you know, the rote learning space to cope with that because they just add such a higher level um, to the curriculum and the load on these guys. Everything just kind of goes pear-shaped and that's why we see all these kids coming through us thank goodness thank goodness because the great news is we can help we can unpack the results and we can really target where their greatest area of need is and we can only do that if we unpack the results like we've like Annika and I've just spoken through because if we had looked at his score in isolation 76 going mm, well, it's not too bad, and his core language is yeah, an 85. No, oh, he's okay. He'll be okay. He's still just within that average range. Well, we know he isn't because all his peers are doing so much better than him. Yes, he's working hard and he's trying to do his best, but you know what? He needs help. And once we've unpacked the results like that, we can really target exactly where that help is needed. And yes, yes, um, a clinical tip as well. Once you've targeted and written a therapy plan, and we, and I acknowledge it takes hours. We know, you know, to to get this right, it takes hours and hours of work. But once we get it right, oh, it's just so rewarding to see how these guys just they pick it up, they run with it. Once we've targeted the correct gaps, and everyone's on board, students engaged, parents are engaged, teachers engaged. Um, they should just start improving in those particular areas. And if you don't see an improvement quite quickly, and I'm talking weeks, if we're not seeing that improvement, dare I be as controversial as to say, it's, it's something that we as the clinician haven't got quite right. So we either haven't targeted our therapy quite right, we either haven't got the student engaged like they should be, or the parents, um, or something else is going on. All right, that we've missed. You know, there might be some neurological underlying condition that we've missed 
for whatever um, reason, if the child is not progressing within weeks, once we've implemented targeted therapy planning, we've got to go back to the drawing board and make sure that we either tweak it. And you know, we don't always get it right the first time and that's okay. But it's important to constantly check that there is some progress happening. And again, it's functional. Say to the teacher, how's he going? Is he more engaged? He's doing his homework. He's finishing tasks. Brilliant. That's, that's fabulous progress. Talk to parents. How's he going? Oh, he's less tired. He's more engaged. He, he's, he's less tempted to sit on Fortnite, I think is the game of choice <laughs> at the moment, or Pokemon sure Go. I'm learning all these crazy things. Um, <laughs> So they, if they less engage, uh, less uh, there's less of a tendency to do that. That's progress because that means, oh, they're finding homework easier, they're more engaged with the learning, and kids love learning. Like we, we love learning, right? We learn every day, and if they're avoiding it, it's because it's hard, and it's our job to make it easier for them. And we do mm. that with correct targeted therapy planning. Mm. And it's the time. It's time well spent. Let's Absolutely. be honest. That, and yes, you're right. It does take time to analyse these scores in the level of detail that we're chatting about today, but it's time well spent at the other end of it. Absolutely. <laughs> so it's worth just investing that time rather than, as you say, having a superficial look at those scores, thinking that this is the right direction to take, and then six months down the track, we're still at the same point with that child. It's Correct. worth investing that time. Now, this particular child also had a pragmatic profile scaled score of eight, which if we're looking superficially, that's at the lower end of the average range. When we look at an age equivalency though for that, it comes out at 510. He's 127. Why is that so seemingly so low? Yeah, interesting. Thanks for raising um, the question or the topic about age equivalencies. So age equivalencies are interesting. How do the test developers come up with age equivalencies? So I I don't really understand it at the level that I probably should, but my superficial understanding is when we're collecting, we, the test developers, are collecting the data for our normative sample and they're extrapolating the age equivalencies, they look at the little cohort that that came from. So, for example, if we're working with a group of six-year-olds, and for our six-year-old norms, we know they're six to six-five. So they look at the average age of that cohort and then extrapolate an age equivalency for that particular subtest against that cohort. But it could potentially seem lower because... Within that particular cohort, most of the kids or the children were closer to six rather than six five, for example. Um, in the manual, there is, um, I think it's page 161, there are limitations on um, using age equivalents. Now, a lot of us do like age equivalents for some reason. That's great. My, my personal preference is not to focus on them at all. And to be honest, I never look at age equivalents and I'd certainly never, ever report them. Why? Again, it goes back to that functional meaning for parents and teachers. Um, in my early career, I did use age equivalents and everybody zoned in on those. So parents and teachers like, what does it mean? And oh my gosh, she's like five years below. And they almost like freak out. Um, so it, it was just a reminder for me, it's like, what, 
what information am I actually wanting to share with the parents? What's functional and meaningful to keep them engaged rather than getting them focused on something that's just noise, essentially. But for that particular example, Annika, I liked um, looking at that in this sense because this student, so year seven student, got a standard score of eight. Um, again, if we unpack his confidence intervals, uh, looking at percentile ranks, his lowest confidence um, interval at percentile rank level is 16. So 84% of his peers are doing better than him, right? What is that for me, interpreting an age equivalent of five years and 10 months is really interesting. You know, the parents will think, oh, he's acting like a five-year-old, but he might be in some instances. And think of our boys. Um, I, I shared with Anika, I have a teenage son. Sometimes he does act like a three-year-old, right? Um, and in this case, this boy, um, his age equivalent is almost six so we could say to parents, are there instances where he's reacting to situations immaturely? So he's not showing that resilience and coping skills. Is it because he doesn't have a good enough expressive language to express himself? Whatever the reason is, or is he just socially immature in particular areas? And we can ask parents to say, you know, sometimes if things don't go his way, does he stomp and, you know, fold his arms and race up to his room, shut the door closed and hide under his duvet covers? Yes. Oh, he does that. Okay. Well, you know, that's not really the best way to deal with something in those situations for an almost 13 year old boy. So that's potentially what that could mean. And that's, that's how I like to have the conversations with parents, always keeping it real for them. Does that help, Annika? Oh, absolutely. I think if nothing more um, as a take home message from this podcast is to look beyond those scores, because again, looking at that, a standard score of eight on a pragmatic profile, your initial gut feeling is, oh, this kid doesn't have any needs in regards to pragmatics when compared to some of the oral language scores that he came out with, but he does. (laughs) So we just need to be much more savvy in just looking beyond those numbers and really interpreting with a little bit more sophistication, I think, definitely. Now, I know that um, Pearson Clinical has some wonderful webinars on the Cell 5. I've attended some of those live in the past, but I do notice now that there are many on demand and free. How do people go about accessing those, Angela? Yes, thanks for raising that, Annika. Um, On our pearsonclinical.com.au website, you will find a webinar archive calendar. So most, I'd say 90% of our webinars are free. Um, We do have a few, a handful that are on demand. Um, they between 30 and $50. Um, they go into a little bit more detail, a little bit more clinical application. Um, and also we have invited speakers to those. Um, so do do make sure that you go and have a look, trawl through it. There's lots of recordings there for all professions. So, you know, if you're interested in a particular area, um, because you work as part of a multidisciplinary team, please, you know, um, have a listen to our psychs and our OTs as well. Um, yeah, so pearsonclinical.com.au. It is important that we get the .com.au correct because oftentimes people call me and say, oh, it's not on your website. And then I find out that they're on the American website. American so one. we love you to visit all our websites, but I need you to stay in the Australian one. <laughs> now, I also know that you are incredibly um, happy to answer questions from people about the self-five. Oh, yes, please. That's, that's my role. So, Ring me anytime. 
So how do people ring you? Is there a number? Is that on the website for people to yes. find? Yes, um, and just ring my mobile. It's a work mobile, so ring any time. I always um, tease the Perth or Western Australian client saying, remember, there's a time difference. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm teasing. They're great. Uh, zero, <laughs> so I'll give it to you now. It's yeah, that'd zero, be wonderful. It's 0408 So nice and easy. Wonderful. So pop it in your phone and store it as Angela, the consultant's beachy. Um, and ring any time. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for being the face of the Self 5 in Australia. I've had some little dealings through webinars. I think even in the past, I have chatted to you on the phone and I've always found you super helpful. Um, you do a wonderful job helping us all out with that. So thank you so much for that. It's wonderful. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. And thank you to everyone. I love learning from everyone. I learn from everyone every day. So thank you. Keep those questions coming. And thank you to everyone for listening and supporting our podcast. We will be back in your ears again next Wednesday. Thanks for your time, Angela. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.